You're listening to sermons from La Cunada Congregational Church and Pastor Kyle Sears. Join us in person every Sunday at 10 a.m. in La Cunada for worship. You can find more information about our church online at lacanadachurch.org. So I think of myself as a pretty strategic person, and this applies also to how I eat cheeseburgers and fries. Um, I, I, I sense that, you know, I, I don't want to just eat one and then the other. I want to mix the cheeseburger and fries and ketchup so that the final bite is cheeseburger, but it still has that lingering sort of fries and ketchup thing. I don't know if you're like me. It's really hard, though, if like you're driving and have to eat this because, you know, I can drive with my knees pretty good, um, but it gets kind of difficult with the dipping of ketchup and fries and all that stuff. So it's safer if I just eat the cheeseburger first, and then the fry, and then move on to the soda and call it an end. But I kind of feel cheated when I do it that way. You know, I'd rather just like stop and eat it the way that I want because, you know, there's this sense of of limitation to how I want to be, that there's not enough to balance it out. And I, I think that that sense of scarcity finds its way in a lot of our thinking, that we're running out of time or space or stuff, and so we better do what we can to make sure that we get taken care of first and that our preferences are met. Otherwise, someone less deserving might get it, or or even worse, someone less deserving might already be getting it, and so we need to find a way to get to the front of the line and have our needs taken care of. And that goes into our spiritual thinking as well, that that our needs are a matter of life and death and others can simply wait their turn. We're gonna encounter an unfair scenario that has Jesus stuck in the middle uh, that shows how Jesus is going to upend our imaginations about how God provides for us and others when they are in need. And so this is Mark chapter five, verse 21 through 43. So Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side coming back from the land of the Gentiles. And a great crowd had gathered around him, and he was by the sea. And then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw him, fell at his feet and pleaded with him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so Jesus goes with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years. She had endured under much physicians and had spent all that she had, but she was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, if I could only touch his cloak, I will be made well. And immediately her flow of blood stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my cloak? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? Everyone's been touching you. He looked all around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, some people came from the synagogue leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the synagogue leader's house, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? This child is not dead, only sleeping. And they laughed at him. And then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. 
And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. And at this, they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. And so right from the beginning of this passage, the clock is ticking and it's life or death. Mark is famously fast-paced in his storytelling, moving from one moment to the next in rapid succession. And here, we need to move quickly because a young girl is on the brink of death. Jesus has returned from this other side of the lake in the Gentile region after healing the man who lived among the tombs. And as he comes back, he's met by this leader of the synagogue, Jairus, this prominent and respected figure who now throws himself down in the dirt before Jesus and begs for help renouncing any decorum in favor of whatever it takes to save his little girl. And Jesus doesn't hesitate. This urgency of God moves Jesus to then immediately start heading toward Jairus' home. But there's an interruption. As the crowd presses in, this woman in need of healing grabs Jesus' cloak and power goes from him and he stops. She's afraid to admit because her constant bleeding means that she is perpetually unclean. She has no business touching Jesus, much less being in a crowd of people where who knows has been touching her, spreading her uncleanliness to others. But she too falls down in the dirt before Jesus and confesses her greatest need. And rather than rebuking her, Jesus will name her as daughter, a child of Israel, beloved by God. And if we were to end the story there, it would be hard felt and moving, except for Mark doesn't allow us to pause. This interruption has delayed Jesus enough that it's too late to save Jairus' daughter. The friends say, what's the point of having Jesus come? Just tell him to go home. And Jesus then announces confidently, do not fear, only believe, have faith, trust that this story is not finished yet. And throughout this telling of the story, so far, fear has been the primary emotion that we have been feeling. From the threat of death to the desperation of this woman, fear is overlaid this story. And both are told to have faith, that faith will bring healing and salvation and remove their fear. You know, I think that, that we've experienced a lot of fear throughout our life. And it feels especially, you know, with the constant headlines that we read and, 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 and wars and dangers that we feel afraid all the time. Having survived a pandemic where many people didn't, it's still something that we live with. And so Jesus's pronouncement that we should trust and believe gives us an opportunity to then name our fears, not to erase them, but to name them and still find the power to move forward. We find within these two people who experience Jesus' healing, the breadth of experiences. We learn Jairus' name. The woman remains unnamed. Jairus is respected and religious and important. She is unclean, poor, hopeless, and marginalized. He comes to Jesus asking for help. She comes taking what she can, moved by action. So often we can narrow our understanding of the way that we come to faith and what faith means to us. And yet it seems in this story, each experience is unique. Each approach is different. And yet Jesus welcomes both. Your story of faith probably has its ups and downs. 
its cliches and its idiosyncrasies. You grew up in church or you didn't. You remained faithful to your commitment or you strayed. You found the blessing of being moved by the spirit of God or you have grown numb to the chaos around you. The common factor in this story is the faith that believes that Jesus will be enough. That in the limits of healing that has been received at the hands of doctors, Jesus was enough. That in the face of death, that Jesus will be enough to save. How is not really thought through in these stories. Simply that the people know that Jesus somehow will do it. This woman has tried every means and Jesus is kind of her last desperate attempt while it seems that Jairus heads to Jesus first before any other way. It can be tempting for us to then leave this story at that part and talk about faith only in terms of sort of this spiritual, ephemeral, sort of touchy-feely kind of thing, this emotion that replaces the fear. But what we find in this story is that people are not looking to be saved from their sins or for a closer connection to the divine or for a sense of oneness with the universe. What we see in this story is that they need something tangible and that Jesus provides that. That salvation comes in the announcement of Christ to care for the actual needs of the people. Mark is pretty scant on details most of the time when he tells these stories through his gospel. And so whenever details come out, we kind of pay attention to them. Here we find that this woman experienced this affliction for 12 years. And as the story goes on, we find that this little girl who is raised to life is 12 years old. This isn't just some fun coincidence. Maybe it's an artistic flourish on behalf of Mark to, to hint at there's this deep truth that connects these two stories together. That the number 12 would jump out to Mark's Jewish readers. He means Israel, right? 12 and the number of tribes. There's some connection here about the very people of God that God has now come to this world to save and on one end of the people, what we find is a poor and outcast woman. And on the other end is a young girl from a respected family. And both of them are named daughter in this passage. Both of them are seen as people who belong to God. And in between these two polar opposite experiences stands a people, a nation, a world in need of salvation and of healing and of freedom from the threat of death and the scarcity of hope. When Jesus pronounces daughter to these two, he includes within it every child of God. That the breadth of God's salvation comes to all who would cry out for God. The manner of healing is a little weird. The anonymous woman the marginalized, the interrupter gets healed first. And in the delay, this young girl now faces death. There, there is a fear here. Like, wait a minute, this, this woman cut in line? She didn't await her turn? She was so desperate that she robbed the power of God and therefore caused more harm to this family? Whenever we hear the language, how the least and marginalized become first in the kingdom of God, it makes us think, well, does that mean the powerful and prominent might miss out? 
Does that mean that people who live a pretty comfortable life in a nice suburb and you know, have all of their needs met for the most part might lose whenever the poor and marginalized and rejected get something before us? I mean, we're here and they're not. God might skip over the faithful in order to bring salvation to the distant? We only have that fear when we imagine that the power of God is subject to the way things are here, where wealth and health and power are scarce, are limited in their resources, like the ketchup packets we get from fast food joints. Can we believe, though, Can we imagine that God's love and justice is never ending, even when death is threatening us? Can we imagine that God is drawing from an infinite resource of provision? Because in the face of fear, Jesus makes two claims that seem ridiculous. The first, he says that this woman, obviously judged by God for this condition, obviously on the outside of God's care and concern, he calls her daughter. And then he says that this dead child is only sleeping. And we find that both of these statements turn out to be true. But we are asked first to believe that they are. Can we believe that this woman who has suffered so much for so long is truly seen by God and named by God as daughter? How can we believe what seems unbelievable? In the moment of grief and fear when both are down in the dirt And sinking into the grave, Jesus will say to both of them, stand up, get up, arise. But this isn't language of posture. This isn't shaking the girl awake from an overextended alarm. The words that Jesus used here are resurrection language. This is the power of God to bring us back from places that we should not come back from. That God can rescue us from grief and fear, from isolation and rejection and yeah, even death. That we come to resolve our fears with truth. The the deeper truth that lies beyond the headlines that God loves us and responds to us. And because we know this truth, we can easily reject the lies that are around us. Even if they seem to make sense that this world is scarce in its resources and you better get yours before someone else does. And instead we can say that we reject greed and scarcity and clawing for what we can claim for our own and instead Embrace the posture of Christ that even in interruptions, we have more than enough to share. The truth is that God's salvation is available to all. That the power of resurrection means that life will overtake death and not the other way around. And by knowing this truth, we can claim that even the nameless among us will be called daughter. And so we can let go of our fears and simply believe, trusting that God is the one who provides all that we need. So may we claim this name for ourselves, that we are children of God and that God's love 
is made known to us in infinite ways. Amen.